Well, welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I'm the missions and college pastor here. And whether you are joining us online or in the lobby or here in this room, we wanna say welcome. We're glad you guys are here. For those who don't know me, I moved to Winston-Salem a little bit over five years ago to start PA school at Wake Forest. And when I moved here, I immediately joined the Two Cities launch team. And so not long after the church launched, I ended up meeting my, my wife, Olivia. So we were married about three and a half years ago, and we actually own the title of being the first couple to meet at Two Cities who gets married. So thank you, thank you. We're, we're very proud of this title. And so, you know, we, we just welcomed our first child, Emma, three months ago. And so the last three months have been full of learning and not a lot of sleeping, um, especially for Olivia. But um, for the last three years, I have led our college ministry part-time while I've worked full-time as a PA in gastroenterology. And over the last year or so, I've had to wrestle with the question of, do I want to enter the ministry full-time? And so a couple months ago, after Olivia and I prayed a lot about it, sought a lot of counsel, I decided to join staff of Two Cities full-time. And so I started in August and it's been an exciting first month or so. So if you're new or if you're just coming around for the, for, if you haven't been coming around long, basically what we do here is we just walk through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And what that inevitably leads to is we end up having to address a lot of topics that are delicate or sensitive in nature. And so we end up talking about money. We end up talking about death. We have to talk about suffering. There's, there's a wide variety of things we have to talk about. Well, what we're gonna be talking about today in 1 Corinthians chapter six is the topic of sexual immorality. Now, last night, I, after the 5 p.m. service, a man walked up to me and he said, so they gave you the topic of sexual immorality? He, he said, is this some kind of pastor hazing going on? I said, I don't know. I guess you'll have to ask Pastor Kyle. Um, many of you remember the birds and the bees talk when you were young. You might remember the sex ed talk that you had, you know, when, when you were in elementary school. So for some reason, I have a very vivid memory of something that happened in my sex ed talk when I was in fifth grade. I was 10 years old. I was in Miss Jean Webb's English class. And so the edu educator came in and she had given her spiel on pregnancy and she explained all the ins and outs of, you know, fertilization and conception and all this stuff. And after she gave her talk, I still had a question. And so she opened up the four questions and I raised my hand and she called on me. And I said, so, so after fertilization occurs and the egg is fertilized, does the egg have to be repeatedly fertilized throughout the pregnancy? And she said, no. And I said, well, good, because that would be a lot of pressure. <laughs> and so today, today is the sex talk for adults. Now, if you grew up in church, more than likely, you did not hear much at all about sex other than maybe sex is filthy, nasty, and disgusting. And so you should save it for the one you love. Some of you grew up in a church and they didn't talk at all about sex. It was sort of like the word Voldemort in Harry Potter. You know, it's like, it's like do not say this word. It's like, you're not allowed to say sex in this church. Some of you might have been a part of a church where they talk about sex all the time, but in ways that are inappropriate. You know, we're all over the map here as far as our experiences go. And so basically what's happening here in the book of 1 Corinthians is the first four chapters, Paul is talking about division in the church. 
He's really addressing a lot of problems throughout the entire book. And then chapter five, he's addressing church discipline and he's talking about caring for Christians in the church. The first part of chapter six, he's talking about lawsuits amongst believers. And then in the second part of chapter six, he's talking about sexual immorality, which is where we are today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter six. So just a little bit of context about Corinthians or about the city of Corinth. It was a very sexually immoral culture. We know that they had around a thousand prostitutes there, which is a lot because the city of Corinth was, was smaller, a lot smaller than the city of Winston-Salem. We know they had a lot of tourism there. There was a lot of young people. There was a lot of sexual energy. And so as a result of all this, there was tons of sexual immorality in this culture. Now, b- before we jump into the text, I feel the need to say that, that I understand that sexual immorality is a very delicate topic. I understand that for many of you, many of your deepest regrets and deepest pains are sexual in nature. You know, I meet up with college students often and I've never had a college student ask to meet with me and say something along the lines of, you know, Spencer, I did something last semester I've never told anyone. It's really been weighing on me and I just wanna tell you. I cheated on a couple of my econ quizzes. That never happens. If they ask to meet with me and they say something like that, it is almost always something sexual in nature that they want to talk about. And so for some of you, it might be something sexual that you did in high school or middle school or college. And this might've been something that you did decades ago, or it might've been something that you did last week. For others, it might be something that was done to you sexually in the past. For some of you, it might be a foolish situation or a foolish decision that you made in your marriage or in your previous marriage. For some of you, you had to learn a lot of things about sex the hard way. For some of you, it might be an ongoing temptation that you have to struggle with and wrestle with. For some of you, it might be that you have a family member who has experienced a significant amount of sexual brokenness. And then in a room this size, for some of you, you are experiencing sexual sexual brokenness right now. This is a very real topic for you because this is something you were in the middle of, not something that, was ha- that had happened back then. And so as I speak today, I understand that you might have some emotions. We're gonna be addressing some heavy topics. But what I want you to hear me say is that if you are in Christ, condemnation is not from the Lord, but conviction is. Amen. Condemnation is not from the Lord, but conviction is. We see in Romans 8 that there is, there now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then we also see in Romans chapter two that conviction is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. All of us are sexual sinners. Every person in this room has sexually desi- sexual desires that are disordered. But what you need to understand is that despite your desires, there is grace and there is forgiveness that is available. And so there's, there's two big ideas that are gonna just sort of overshadow this entire message. The first is we have to understand what is at stake when it comes to sexual sin. And then secondly, you need to hear me say this, is that Jesus Christ is able to forgive and heal and restore sexual sinners. And so with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. It says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take, take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul starts verse 12 here, and he's addressing some common sayings that were used in the Corinthian culture. And the first saying he references is where they say, all things are lawful for me. So basically, this is their way of saying, I can do pretty much anything I want because I'm saved. To which Paul says, nope, not everything that is permissible is acceptable. Just because, you know, it's not inherently sinful doesn't mean that you can do it. And, you know, he, what he's hinting at here is that there are certain things in each of our lives that are morally neutral, that aren't inherently sinful, that you should stop doing. Some of you are absolutely controlled by morally neutral things. Things that aren't necessarily sinful, but you need to stop doing them because they're slowing you down. And so for some of you, it might be scrolling on social media for 30 minutes before you go to bed. For some of you, it might be overeating after a long, stressful day at work. It might be drinking too much. For some of you, it might be getting emotionally affected by how your fantasy football team does. For some of you, it might be getting emotionally affected by how your favorite sports team does. You know, if they lose, you're irritable and agitated and a jerk to your wife. You know, each of us in here have, have things in our lives that aren't necessarily sinful that we have to take seriously. The point is that if your leisure time leaves you emotionally affected in a negative way, you should probably reconsider how you're spending your leisure time. Hebrews 12, it says for, that we need to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And so, of course, if something is sinful in your life, you need to get rid of it. But there are also things in your life that are not inherently sinful that are weights to you that you need to consider and get rid of. And so we need to be a church that is full of people that says yes to leisure time, but says no to perpetual or harmful leisure. So the first thing Paul says is just because something is not inherently sinful, doesn't mean it can't be dangerous. The second thing that Paul addresses is in verse 13, which says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So when the Corinthians were saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, basically what they were saying is food is, or that sex is just like any other desire that you have. So if you're hungry, you should eat. If you're thirsty, it's okay to drink. If you're sleepy, it's okay to sleep. And then they're basically saying, you know, if you have a sexual urge, it's okay for you to give in to that urge. And, and Paul hears this and he says, no, it's like your desire for sex is much different than any of your other physical desires. As a PA, one of the things I did all the time was talk to people about their stomachs. That's just, just the nature of what I did. And I never had a patient come to me and say, you know, Spencer, last year I satisfied my desire for food with a Big Mac from McDonald's. And I still am just not emotionally over it. That never happened. And the reason why that never happened is because there's not anything inherently spiritual 
with eating in the same way that it is with sexual immorality. And so Paul says, do not compare fulfilling your desires for food with your sexual desires. And then also in verse 13, Paul uses the word sexual immorality, which comes from the Greek word porneia, which is where we get the word pornography from. And I think that before we go further in this text, we need to understand what is sexual immorality. So what we see from the scriptures is that sexual immorality is engagement in any sex or sexual acts outside of the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's what it is. Sexual immorality is any engagement in sex or sexual acts outside of the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And in the same way that the Corinthian culture had a lot of sexual immorality going on and they had a lot of misconceptions about sex, Surely, just by looking around, you can see that we live in a sexually immoral culture. And we have so many misconceptions about sex. I wrote down four misconceptions that, uh, four misconceptions that I'm going to share with you. Um, we definitely have more than this, but definitely not less than this. So the first one is culture will say, if the desire is there, the action is okay. They'll say, if the desire is there, the action is Okay. And so they'll, so they'll say, well, if you have an urge to do something, then it's totally fine for you to satisfy that urge. Or they'll say, if you naturally desire something, it's totally fine for you to give into that desire. You know, years ago, there was a interview done with Rick Warren, who is a pastor in California, pastor and author. And he was interviewed by Ann Curry. And she asked him, she said, if science were to prove that same-sex desires are natural, would you change your position on this issue? And he looked at her and he said, no. And when he said that, she's just like, what, what, why, why? Tell me. And he's like, well, if you'll let me explain myself for a second, I'll, I'll tell you. And then he says that just because something is natural does not mean that it's good best for you or society. And then he looked at her and he said, naturally, I want to have sex with every beautiful woman I see but that doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. And when I heard this, I'm just like, this is exactly right. Every one of us in here have natural desires that we need to say no to all the time. Is there anyone in here who would argue that just because I have a natural desire to sleep with other women, that that is what I should do? It's like, of course not. You know, in view of my relationship with my wife, in view of my family, there are tons of things that I need to say no to. There are tons of things that each of us need to say no to, despite the fact that we have these natural desires. And so the first misconception is that if the desire is there, the action's okay. The second misconception is that culture says sex is just physical. Culture will say sex is just physical. Now, I really think that each of us know deep down intuitively that sex is not just physical. The scriptures tell us, and as we're going to see here, that sex is much more than just, just physical. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So what Paul is saying here is not that by having sex with a prostitute makes you married to a prostitute. The big idea of what he's saying is that even sex with a prostitute leads to something deeply spiritual happening. When he refers to prostitution, just think no commitment. Prostitution means no strings attached. 
And so he's saying it, that even in the, in the scene of prostitution, there's still something deeply spiritual happening. There's a saying with prostitution that says, you know, you don't, pray the, you don't pay the prostitute for the sex, you pay them to leave afterwards. That what you are paying for is for there to be no commitment. And what's interesting about this is this is a topic where modern day studies have proven what the Bible has been saying for the last 2000 years to be true. So in the 1990s, there was a study done in Germany by a psychologist. And what he found was that of men that hire prostitutes, roughly two thirds of them return to the same prostitute despite having the means to hire different prostitutes. Why is this? Well, it's because sex is not just physical. In verse 15 and 16, Paul is referencing Genesis chapter two as he talks about this. And I'm gonna put this on the screen, but we're gonna hop there. Don't feel like you have to turn there. Genesis 2, 24 says this. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and, and were not ashamed. And so in Genesis 2, we see that God created marriage and that God created sex. And we see that human beings were sexual before we were sinful, which happens in Genesis 3. And the language of being naked and unashamed here is talking about how in marriage and with sex, you are uniquely vulnerable. You are uniquely exposed. That in marriage and with sex, you are uniquely known in a way that you shouldn't be known outside of that relationship. And so culture will say sex is just physical, but the scriptures say that sex is much more than just physical. The third misconception the culture has is they will say that when it comes to sexual intimacy, all that you need is consent. All that you need is the consent. You see, the culture does not place a high priority on long-term commitment. And because of that, what ends up happening is they place the bar low at consent. Consent by itself is inadequate. Consent is a low, low bar, which is why the Bible says that you need more than just consent. What you need is a covenant. Now, just to be clear, consent must be present in any and every sexual relationship, including in the marriage relationship. But when consent is the bar, it's gonna lead to all kinds of things being complicated, at least to all kinds of mess. This past week, I was doing some research on this and I went to UNC Chapel Hill's policy page, my alma mater. And I was reading and they have tons of information on consent. But despite the copious amounts of information, there's still so many gray areas. And so one of the things they would say is they say, consent cannot be obtained by coercion. Now, when you read that, it's like, well, well what qualifies as coercion? And, and what if I feel like I consented in the moment, but two weeks later, you know, after you've broken up with me, I look back on it and I think that I actually might've been coerced. What then? You see, it's just messy. And then another thing they say is that consent cannot be obtained from an individual who is incapacitated by alcohol. Well, can you give consent after one drink? What about two drinks? What about four drinks? The point here is that when consent is the bar, it leads to confusion, it leads to pain, it leads to regret. And so culture says you need consent. Christianity says you need covenant. Which leads me to the fourth misconception the culture has about sex and Christianity, which is that Christians have a low view of sex. 
cultural say, cultural say, you know, Christians, they just don't want you to have any fun. They're just so rigid. They think that sex is something you shouldn't talk about. And this is just not the case. Christians have strong views on sexuality, not because we think that sex is bad, but because we know that sex is a very, very good thing when it is, when it is experienced correctly. The reason that we have strong convictions is because we understand the power and the uniting nature of sex. And so four myths, if the desire is there, the action is okay. Sex is just physical. All you need is consent. And Christians have a low view of sexuality or of sex. All of these are false. All of these are misconceptions. So let's go now to verse 18. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Many of you probably remember learning, about, learning in school about the fight or flight response. So basically the fight or flight response is what happens when you are in an environment and you sense danger. And when you sense danger, there's normally one of two responses. You're either gonna fight the danger or you're gonna flee the danger. And what Paul is saying here is that the Bible is clear that when it comes to sexual immorality, you are to flee the danger. Now think about this. Have you ever seen someone flee something? So my wife, Olivia, she is terrified of snakes. And when I say terrified, she's really terrified. And she argues that this fear is biblical, by the way. And a, cu a couple years ago, we were, we were at a lake house with some friends and Olivia and her friend were sitting on the dock. And the way Olivia tells the story is she says that they were sitting on the dock and they looked, they looked in the water and there was a snake that was swimming towards them. And the snake apparently dove down into the water and then it lunged up towards them on the dock. And Olivia, in this moment, she ran like 50 yards away, away from the dock. In that moment, what, what Olivia did not do is just take just a couple steps aside and say, okay, I think I'm good. I'm away from the snake. No, she fled. Like this is what it looks like to flee. 2 Timothy 2.22 says that we are to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, there are other spots in the scriptures where we are told to resist temptation or to resist the devil in James. But here we are told to flee sexual immorality because sexual sin has uniquely devastating consequences. When Paul says that all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, basically what he's saying is that other sins don't tend to leave as lasting or as deep of an impact because they are not as spiritual in nature. And so for example, if, if I give myself over to the sin of gluttony and I go to Cracker Barrel and I eat two large breakfast platters, like I am not becoming one flesh with the Cracker Barrel. Like that, that's just a sin that I'm committing. There's not much spiritual going on there. And so the command to flee sexual immorality is very relevant. There are issues that we have to address often here at Two Cities. This is not something that is outside of us. This is something that we have to deal with often here. One of the things that we have to deal with is the topic of cohabitation. So cohabitation is when a couple is living together before they're married. Historically, this has been referred to as shacking up. And so what happens is couples come to the weekender, we get their information, we see that you know, they're not married, but we notice that they're at the same address. And so this ends up leading to a conversation. And you know, we've already addressed, is premarital sex sinful? Yes. 
But the question we'll get sometimes is, well, if I'm engaged or dating, is it okay for us to live together as long as we're not having sex? And, you know, I understand why people do this. You know, it is cheaper to cohabitate. Two rent payments are more expensive than one rent payment. It is very convenient to live in the same house as someone that you're about to get married to. I mean, in most, in a lot of these cases, like, well, we're going to get married in, in four months, so what's the big deal? Well, there are two reasons why cohabitating for any reason is foolish and sinful. The first is just very clear in this text that we are told to flee sexual immorality. It would be silly of you to pray to God, Lord, I want you to lead me not into temptation while you are willfully living in a tempting environment. You know, we are to flee sexual immorality, not play with it. The second thing is that cohabitation is confusing to the world. There are multiple places in scripture where we are told that as believers, how we act is important and that how the culture perceives us is also important. We see in in Philippians 2 that we are meant to be shining lights in the midst of a crooked generation. And so if you are living together and you are not married, even if there is not any sexual activity taking place, the culture assumes that there is. And you might say, you know, is, is this really that big of an issue? You know, is this that important? And the answer is yes. And the reason why is because this issue is often rooted in a deeper issue. Because where we'll sometimes get with people is we'll say this. If we show you clearly in the scriptures that cohabitation is sinful and foolish, are you willing to move out and stop living together? And a lot of times they'll say, no, I'm not because I don't care. And when they say that, that lets us know that there's something deeper at work because then the question becomes, it's not so, are you willing to live together? It's how do you view the Lordship of Christ in your life? which is a much deeper issue. And so we are told to flee sexual immorality, which also includes pornography. Now, whenever pornography is mentioned, I know that some of you think, is this really that big of a deal? Why is this talked about so often? Well, the data suggests that in culture at large and even in the church, pornography is a very prevalent problem. Now, we know that pornography affects men more than women, but that women, it seems to be increasingly are struggling with this as well. And from my experience in ministry, most people are exposed to pornography for the first time between ages 10 and 14. You know, the the research shows that the pornography industry actually targets 12 to 13 year olds, which is just devastating. And what happens in most cases, the primary reason that people watch pornography for the first time is they're curious. You know, you're 11, you're 12, you don't, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen with your body in the future, so you want to watch pornography just to try to get an idea. And what happens is that curiosity leads to addiction. And so parents, if you are allowing your kids to have unlimited access on their phones and on their computers, you are playing with fire. It is your responsibility to protect them and inform them. And so in the same way that it's your responsibility to protect them and inform them when it comes to why they should avoid copperhead snakes, it is your same responsibility to protect them and inform them when it comes to pornography. And the way that you do this is you have to do the hard work of figuring out what is accessible to them. 
and, th and that's challenging because what is accessible to your kids is constantly changing, but you have to do your best to try to figure this out. Another very interesting thing to think about is the, connect is the connection between prostitution and pornography. So prostitution, when Paul wrote this letter, was the easiest way in the culture to get a sexual fix. Prostitution was available and prostitution was affordable. Today, in 2021, what do you think the easiest way is? Well, it's pornography. Because pornography is available, it's affordable, and it's seemingly anonymous. One of the worst things about pornography is that it lies to the man and tells him that there are no consequences to his actions. That there is no consequences to his addiction. And this is just not the case. There are plenty, plenty of consequences to watching pornography. I'm gonna share two with you. The first is that pornography trains men to believe that women are objects to be consumed rather than image bearers to be protected and served. And what ends up happening is when you indulge in pornography repeatedly, and if you are not acknowledging that the woman you are looking at is an image bearer who has a soul, what ends up happening is you begin to view real women in your life as objects. And this is a problem. And sometimes I'll be talking with guys and they'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, if, if I could just get over my addiction to pornography, I feel, like, I feel like I would be good. I feel like this is really the only thing that I'm struggling with. And, you know, with, with this particular addiction and really with all addictions, we have to ask the question is, what sins are underlying this addiction? Because normally there are other sins underlying any addiction. For example, selfishness. What does the selfish man or woman say? The selfish man or woman says, I will have what I want when I want it. I don't care if it's a sin against God. I don't care if it harms those I love. If I want it, I'm gonna get it. That's selfishness. Selfishness is often at the root of addiction. Discontentment. The discontent person is fixated on things that they do not have. And that fixation and that discontentment leads them to do a lot of things that they wouldn't do otherwise. And so there are multiple consequences to watching pornography. The second is that, is that pornography kills a man's capacity for sexual fulfillment. Pornography kills a man's capacity for sexual fulfillment. You know, one of the things that pornography, do, pornography does is it gives both men and women unrealistic expectations about what to expect with sex in the marriage relationship. It gives people unrealistic expectations. Um, speaking of unrealistic expectations, a couple years ago, I was speaking with a Wake Forest student and he told me, and he told me this very confidently. He said, when I get married, I'm gonna have sex every night for the first year. And I said, I mean, I'd only been married a couple months at the time, but I was like, I was like, let me know how that goes for you. I don't like your chances. <laughs> but, but that's what happens is we end up having unrealistic expectations. And I've seen on multiple occasions how pornography use before marriage leads to significant struggles in marriage. One of the myths about pornography is that once you get married, your temptation to watch it's gonna go away. And, and another thing people will think is, well, even if I watch it now, I'm not gonna have to struggle with the effects of pornography in marriage. And that is definitely gonna be the case, that pornography use before marriage persists into the marriage relationship in ways that are harmful. And so you might hear, these, you might hear me say these things and you might say, 
what, well, that's me. I'm addicted. And so what do I do? Look with me at verse 17. Verse 17 says this. It says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so just as husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, the Christian becomes one flesh with Christ. And this is incredible because what this means is regardless of your past, regardless of what temptation you have, if you are a Christian, despite your struggles, you are one with Christ. This is the language of being fully known and fully loved at the same time. And so if you're not a Christian, you have to understand that this is an invitation to you, that the God of the universe wants to know you fully and love you fully, despite what he ends up knowing about you, which is just incredible. Um, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author from New York, he says, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. And so basically what that means, you know, if someone loves you, but they don't really know you, it's like, well... It doesn't really mean anything because they don't, they don't know you. And then he says, to be known but not loved is our deepest fear. The idea that once someone knows you, they're like, well, now that I know you, I don't want to be, I don't want any part of you. That's, that's what's terrifying to us. But then he says, to be fully known and fully loved is a lot what it's like to be loved by God. That for the Christian, or really for anyone, that God knows you fully and he loves you fully. And this kind of intimacy is what he wants to have with you. And so in the same way that, that we are fully known and fully loved by God, marriage is meant to be a picture of this in that in the marriage relationship, you are fully known and fully loved by the other. And then sex within marriage is a beautiful illustration of that as well. And so we all are fully loved and fully known by God. And this is made possible, we can see how in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul says, you were bought with a price. What he's doing here is he's reminding Christians of the cross. And so regardless of what you've done in your past, regardless of what you continue to struggle with, if you are in Christ, you have been forgiven and accepted and adopted by God. And so if you are feeling overwhelmed by your sexual sin, you need to understand that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead in order to forgive you, in order to heal you, and in order to restore you. You see, the cross does a lot of things, but two things the cross does when it comes to addiction is the cross gives you the ability to walk away from addiction but more than that, in view of what Christ has done on the cross, the cross gives you the motivation to say no to temptation going forward. And so a few practical things to overcome addiction. And this applies to a variety of addictions. The first is confession is normally the first step. Confession is normally the first step. So you first need to confess your sin to God. You know, in, in Psalm 51, after David had committed some terrible sins, He's praised to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you need to first confess to God. And then you also, also need to confess your sin to other believers. You need one to three people in your life who are the same gender that you can confess your sin to. And these people need to be able to walk with you, hold you accountable, encourage you, challenge you, pray for you. You have to be in accountability. 
one of the things we say here is that you need privacy, not secrecy. Privacy, not secrecy. And what many of you need to understand is that if you could overcome your current temptation by yourself, you probably would have already. We must be in community. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to confess our sin. The second thing is we have to repent and replace. And so you need to turn away from your addiction and you need to replace it. And so you might need to replace your desires for a particular habit with a desire for holiness. You might need to replace your free time or your time alone with time with friends. And so some of you, you might literally need to look at your calendar and say, where on this calendar am I gonna have too much alone time? And then you might just need to take drastic measures in how you plan your week when it comes to this. Some of you may need to make triggers less available to you. This might mean, you know, downloading the Covenant Eyes software. This might mean avoiding watching Netflix shows that have a lot of explicit content. This might mean deleting apps off of your phone. In the past, I've messaged a college student on a messaging app. And I noticed that he didn't respond to my messages, which is not that atypical for college students. They tend to not respond a lot. And I saw him a couple weeks later because I know him and, you know, we're friends. And it wasn't like I didn't know this guy. So I saw him. I said, hey, I said, why have you not been responding to my messages? And he said, I haven't been getting them because I deleted that app and every other app on my phone that I could possibly access explicit images. And when I heard this, I was like, this is what it looks like to take temptation seriously. This is what it looks like to be someone who is trying to walk away from his sexual sin. And so we need to repent and replace. Lastly, you need a vision and a counter vision. Now, if you've been here long at all, you've probably heard us say here that what vision is, is vision is a picture of something in the future that creates passion in the present. And so what some of you need is you need a picture of something in the future that gives you energy and the ability to be self-controlled today. And so what that might be is that might be, you know, picturing yourself in the future five years from now and not being addicted. And instead of being addicted, you are walking with those and encouraging those who are currently struggling with an addiction. So you need a vision, but you also need a counter vision. Some of you need to take a long, hard look at what will happen to you in your life if you continue to struggle with this particular addiction. Some of you need to take a long, hard look at what will happen to you and your family if you give yourself over to a particular temptation that you are having right now. Ask yourself, do you want to have any moral authority in your home? Do you want to be struggling with this addiction and hiding it from your wife and kids in your 30s? Or worse, in your, your grandkids in your 60s? Of course not. So you need a vision and a counter vision. What we need in this church is a church full of people who are self-controlled. What a self-controlled person does is a self-controlled person gives up what they want now for what they want most. And what we want most is to honor Christ. We want to have strong marriages. We want to have strong families. And our desire for those things should allow us to be self-controlled today. And so you might hear me say these things and you might say, well, I feel like I have really blown it. You know, 
I've just made so many mistakes and I just don't really know what to do. How I would encourage you is I would just say, you know, the cross screams that Jesus knew that you would blow it. But despite the fact that you've blown it, Jesus has not changed his mind about you. Jesus knew full and well that you were gonna blow it when he went to the cross. But out of love for you, he did so willingly and joyfully in order to reconcile you to himself. John 3, 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ offers restoration instead of condemnation. The good news for each of you is that because of the cross, because of Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, that you do not have to bear the weight of your sexual sin. You do not have to bear the weight of whatever addiction that you have right now. Some of you are Christians and you have been forgiven of your sexual sin. But for whatever reason, you just continue to just carry the weight of it. You just feel shame. You feel guilt. You feel a lot of sorrow. But the good news of the cross is that you do not have to carry that sorrow, that Jesus Christ will carry that sorrow for you. I'm gonna close by reading a passage from Isaiah 53, a well-known passage. It'll be on the screen. It says this, it says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, because of the cross, because you were bought with a price, you can say no to sexual temptation. Because of the cross, you can experience healing and you can be restored. Pray with me. Lord, I just thank you and I praise you that you came not to condemn us, but rather to save us. Father, I wanna pray specifically for those in this room right now who are struggling with any kind of addiction. Lord, I pray that you would give them a few men and women in their lives who can encourage them, who can challenge them, who can hold them accountable. And Lord, I pray for self-control. I pray that we would be men and women who are just very self-controlled and we are able to say no to our desires now because we see something in the future that is much more desirable. And Lord, I, th I thank you for the cross. Lord, I thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you despite of our sin. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.